Welcome to Cage Minds MMA Show. My name is Micah Frankel. I have a website I'd appreciate it if you visit. It's cageminds.com. We also have the YouTube channel, Cage Minds MMA Show. And keep up with everything we're doing on social media, Cage Minds Combat Sports News, on Facebook, at cageminds underscore CSN on Instagram at Cage Minds MMA on Twitter and we have a merchandise also available to help with the supporting some pretty cool stuff new designs are going up and all that is available at nmproshop.com including hats and hoodies available for the winter my name is Micah Frankel and you can keep up with my Twitter at FrankelMicah I also have two podcasts that I'm a part of over on the After Hours Podcast Network with Michael Carlisle, MMA After Hours, and Pro Wrestling After Hours on the website. You can find those by clicking the After Hours tab. So we have a lot to get to this week. It was a busy week last week. I mean, one championship, Bellator, LFA, UFC this week. The last LFA of the year. An incredible UFC final pay-per-view card of the year two championship fights so a lot to talk about and we'll get started Friday morning we had one championship winner warriors main event lightweight kickboxing world title on the line Reagan Ursel pushed to the limit by Islam Murtazayev but the split decision and the Late charge, those last three rounds, so strong from the champion in retaining the title. One Adam Waite Grand Prix Finals. Stamp Fairtex, the Muay Thai kickboxing world champion against the Indian high caliber wrestler Ryu Fugat. Fugat getting the fight to the ground, but in surprise fashion, the kickboxer had something there on the mat. It was an armbar. Stamp Fairtex, another one title goes on her wall and she'll fight for the one MMA world title in 2022 against Angela Lee. Lee returning from a year away with pregnancy and taking care of her child. A huge women's Adam Waite title fight on the way next year. And not to mention that card also saw Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu standout Marcus Pachecha pick up his second MMA victory, getting the rear naked choke. Friday night, Bellator was back at the fight sphere. We're talking about Unisville, Connecticut, the Mohegan Sun Arena, Bantamweight World Title Fight in the main event. We had said going in, the winner possibly with an argument for being the top Bantamweight in the world. Would it be the champion or would it be the challenger? And in stunning fashion, it's the champion retaining. What do I mean stunning fashion? If you haven't heard about it, let's tell you how it happened. After three rounds of domination, all scorecards that I saw going in the favor of the challenger, Koji Hadaguchi looked like he was well on his way to becoming a two-time Bellator Bantamweight champion. His takedowns were working. You saw Pettis dripping blood from his nose, was getting beat to the punch until the fourth round where... Pettis is able to stuff the Hataguchi entry, goes for a disengaging head kick. 
Horiguchi ducks as he brings his head back up. The missing head kick, that momentum, Pettis decides to spin with it. A perfect left hand spinning back fist, clipping the chin. Horiguchi falling towards the ground, unconscious, and still your Bellator Bantamweight champion. It's Sergio Pettis, still has that world title around his waist. It leaves a lot to be wondered, and we'll get to the news, but Bellator has some big news about their Bantamweight division. That main card, you saw in the co-main event, Jeremy Kennedy get the decision win over Emmanuel Sanchez. It was all about the takedowns, and Sanchez was unable to do anything once underneath Kennedy. Johnny Eblen, a middleweight to keep an eye on, remains unbeaten, came out, wasted no time, got right at Colin Huckbody, and started unleashing devastating shots. Huckbody got knocked down, got back up, stuck on the cage, and stopped. Eblen made a statement, then called out former title challenger John Salter. There's some young blood there in the middleweight division to get excited about outside of Austin Vanderford, Johnny Eblen. Huge statement made and received. Opening up the main card, Josh Hill won. Whoa! Gigantic overhand right. Puts out Jaron Scoggins early into the second round. After a pretty uneventful first round, Hill automatically now is your Bellator Bantamweight Grand Prix alternate. There it is. The breaking news from Bellator. Bantamweight World Grand Prix in 2022. Your eight participants will include both guys that we saw in the main event. Koji Hataguchi and Sergio Pettis. Both scheduled to be a part of that Grand Prix. The announcement made before the fight. So who knows how the health of Horiguchi is going to look going into next year. Off of what was honestly a scary, devastating knockout loss. Former... Bantamweight champion Juan Archuleta, he's among the contestants. You also have, in my opinion, the number one contender, Rufian Stotts. I know he's teammates with Pettis, but I'd like to see Stotts and Pettis right away out the gate because Stotts obviously has earned it. Patchy Mix, Leandro Higo. Oh, look, James Gallagher, who Patchy Mix just submitted, and Magomed Magomedov, who Ruffian Stotch just beat by decision, also going to be a part of the mix. And don't forget Archuleta coming off of a loss to Sergio Pettis. So familiar faces, the best Bantamweights Bellator has to offer. And it'll be interesting to see how many rematches we get in this mix. Now, as for my last thoughts on Bellator 272, if you didn't catch the prelims, there was one that definitely stood out above the rest. Spike Carlisle, on short notice, we saw him in the UFC at 145 pounds, jumping up to a 160 catch weight with normally lightweight Dan Moret. Moret, two in a row victories, including beating top 10 ranked Bellator lightweight Koji Hataguchi. This one, Moret would own in the clinch early. He would get his takedowns in the second. It was looking all good until it wasn't in the third round. Carlisle starts ducking, chucking, winging away with big bombs, and they are landing, hurting Moret, forcing Moret into the takedown. Moret gets the takedown, advances to mount, 
from the mount position. Spark, Spike Carlisle ducks out under, tries to go out through the five hole, comes out, beats Moret to the back, takes the back and gets the rear naked choke. A huge come from behind victory for Carlisle. Also Friday night, you had LFA 119 over on UFC Fight Pass. The main event, a battle for the vacant middleweight title. Josh Averio versus Jared Revel. And it was Silveria reaching down to his wrestling, getting after the Arizona State wrestler there in Arizona. He'd say post-fight, somewhere in the second round, he decided this one was going to go five. And after five rounds, Silveira gets his second title belt in the LFA. Now your light heavyweight and middleweight LFA champion. The second person in the promotion's history to become a two-division champion, joining the list with Casey Kenny. In the co-main event, Richard Palencia, a great showing early, some huge hooks, attacking the takedowns, would do enough and would hold on to withstand a late Alan Bogosa charge to capture the LFA Bantamweight title. Watch out now, still unbeaten, Richard Palencia could be a short, quick call up to the UFC. And in flyweight action, still unbeaten, second head kick victory on his resume, Clayton Carpenter put Rodney Kialohi to sleep with a big right head kick off of the Kialohi jab. Devastating stuff there. Saturday night, it was UFC Vegas 44 from the Apex Bantamweight main event. Number 4, Rob Font. Number 5, former featherweight champion Jose Aldo. I thought going in, the volume, the reins, the use of the jab, the pace that Font would overwhelm an Aldo whose gas tank would drain by the end of five rounds. You would see him start to slow down. I favored the younger, less mileaged Font heading in. Some of those kind of notions coming in would be proven correct, and some would not. Font, major volume early on. The jab is working beautifully for about 4 minutes and 50 seconds of the first round as Jose Aldo is using looping hooks to try to connect. But then, Jose Aldo goes jab, cross, down the middle, knocked down with 10 seconds left on the clock. And by the end of the first round, Aldo is on top of Font in a very compromising position. If we had more time left on the clock, 30 seconds, Aldo might get the finish right there. Second round, we're talking about the Aldo power shots and Font trying to clear his head from what happened in the latter seconds of that first round. The third round, Font had been doing most of his damage in the second round with leg kicks. The pleas of the Aldo corner to implement his legendary leg kicking game were heated in that third frame where Aldo would land seven damaging leg kicks, defend a takedown, and have top time against Font. But at some point, Font would land an elbow inside, swelling up Aldo's right eye. Would that eye become a problem later on in the fight? Was the question as soon as you saw Aldo stand up? 
the fourth round. A right hand knockdown again for Jose Aldo and a bunch of top time. The fifth round, a desperate Rob Fonts, but the power shots were there. The one, two, stings Font a knee for the knockdown. And Jose Aldo with the top time, with taking the back, with a solid mount showing his jujitsu. So exhausted he could not go for the finish, which should not be criticized for the incredible performance that the King of Rio put on. Yes, you would have loved to have seen the finish. Yes, it's possible that fans would be clamoring for it. But for media members to be criticizing, or for commentary to be criticizing a Jose Aldo who had put on a spectacular performance and was exhausted when he has the top position and when he's hunting for the head and arm triangle, we could criticize that Jose Aldo possibly is a little too grappling-centric playing the jiu-jitsu game and not looking to open up his opponent with strikes. But we could also say that this was a Aldo who was trying to manage what energy he had left. The energy that he was expending, that he was putting out to try to get a finish, was not equal to the energy that he still had. Yes, I'm saying he wrote it out a little bit, but it can't be criticized off of three knockdowns in a fight that he was the underdog. Quite a miraculous performance, in my opinion, from Jose Aldo. Should have known better than to count him out. The co-main event, Rafael Faziz, Defeats his former training partner, Brad Riddell, by a wheel kick knockout. It looked like some sweet chin music. The seventh knockout of his career, a five-fight win streak. Took center and pressed the fight early. Wolf Aziz cuts open. Riddell under his right eye in the first. Then Faziz with a step-in elbow. Busts Riddell in the eyebrow wide open over his left eye in the second. Riddell would come back hard in the third, busting Faziz open over his left eye, but dropping the right hand, circling to his right, is where Faziz would spin from his right to the left, and the wheel kick meets the chin. A frozen Brad Riddell knocked out on his feet. Thankfully, Faziz doesn't have to do any more damage. A good stoppage. Top 15 ranked light heavyweight Jamal Hill, Jimmy Crew. We knew that both prospects were coming in off of L's. Somebody was going to bounce back in a big way, and it's the check right hook. Jamal Hill, two times landing the right hook. One time off the top of the head, the second time right to Jimmy Crew's left eye, damaging one ground and pound shot, and the ref jumps in. 9-1 now, Jamal Hill back in the win column. And as I said, the winner was going to do this in spectacular fashion and be the hottest name, the hottest young name at 205 pounds. And I believe he still is right now in Jamal Hill. Lightweight action between a pair of veterans, Clay Guida and Tough Brazil winner Leonardo Santos, and early on it's Santos with a teep kick to the liver, hurting Clay Guida, drops Guida for the first time with a body punch. Looking at the ref after his first 20 unanswered strikes landed, looking still at the ref after 30 unanswered strikes. Don't know if referee Peterson is warning a sprawled out Santos about hitting Guida in the back of the head or not. A 51st unanswered strike is a knee from the tie clinch that drops 
Guida. That one was right to the jaw. You have a 67th unanswered strike, a knee to the body, dropping Guida for the third time. A 74th unanswered strike from Santos would see him finally gas out and the momentum would start to turn. Even though Guida would not land a lot from this moment till the end of the first round, you would just see an exhausted, exhausted Leonardo Santos, who had no way to defend the takedown in the second round, gives up his back and a monumental comeback win for Clay Guida. Now, as a Clay Guida fan, I want to be like, yay, just an epic comeback. But as somebody, again, that possibly incorrectly thinks about things further down the line, this is the kind of fight when you see a guy get knocked down three times and 74 unanswered strikes, just makes me feel that for every epic comeback, it justifies every prolonged beating. It justifies every time we feel like that was such a late stoppage. It was such a late stoppage. Look at how bad that person's being beaten. On the other hand, you're like, Chet Congo defeated Pat Barry. You're like, Clay Guida tired out. Leonardo Santos. So for every epic comeback, I'm scared the repercussions of a prolonged beating can be just around the corner. Earlier on in the card, you saw what was a pretty good comeback. I mean, Chris Curtis defeats Brendan Allen. The small middleweight, basically it came up as a welterweight in Chris Curtis. Second short notice fight in the UFC and again was a giant underdog, the biggest underdog on the card coming into this one against Brennan Allen. In the first round, it seemed like the action favored Allen. Some huge right body kicks, a takedown, seemed to be in Allen's favor. The second round, you saw the Curtis boxing start to do damage, start to land. They exchange. It's the body shot and exchange of right hooks where... Curtis is on the mark, and Allen is now doing the stanky leg dance around the cage. More right hands coming, knees from the tie clinch. Down goes Allen, in jumps the ref, and Chris Curtis 2-0 in the UFC after way too long to get to the octagon. It's 6-0 just in the calendar year for Chris Curtis. Alex Morono. Gets the decision victory over Mickey Gall. It's 90 to 65, the strike count. It was more accurate, more damaging shots done throughout the three rounds from the Texan, who's on a three fight win streak. On the prelims, the featured prelim middleweight action, Dusko Todorovic saves his UFC job defeating Maki Patolo. It's a TKO from ground and pound. The Hawaiian was landing some big strikes early. Todorovic counters with the takedown. Patolo went for the guillotine. Dusko escapes. The smashing starts from the guard to the crucifix to the mount. Patolo gives his back, gets flattened, and then gets ground and pound to the TKL. A fourth loss in a row, and I think Maki Patolo is on his way out of the UFC. In flyweight action, Manel Camp racks up his second TKO victory. This one was swarming punches. He hurt Zuglas Zuglamalov with the calf kicks early, then a 1-2 for the knockdown. Kept his opponent 
on the cage and started unloading with the strikes. A second spectacular finish for the former Ryzen champion. And in women's strawweight action, Cheyenne Vilmas looked the best she ever has. Best that I've seen her look against Mallory Martin. Looked fast, light on her feet, ripping combination, stuffing takedowns, slashing in the elbows when they were in close. And it's 134 to 80 in the landed strikes, looking like a bright future contender in Vilmas, who's now won two in a row. In the light heavyweight division, we had what was a tale of three different fights within one fight as William Knight defeats Alonzo Menafield by decision. Knight dropped Menafield with a left hook at the end of the first round. It was the big power strikes. The second round, you had a 30-17 to 17 advantage in landed strikes from Menafield, who was the faster of the two. When he was working behind his jab, he was giving Knight problems. But Knight did have Menafield staggered at the end of the second round with a big kick that was partially blocked. But we've seen partially blocked, you still get the reverberation through the glove, through the head, and it can still affect the person absorbing the strike. The third round, Menafield puts Knight on the fence. It's a 3 minute and 18 seconds of control time. Well, Knight outlands Menafield 19 to 8, but I thought a lot of them were slaps in the clinch. Couple good leg kicks, but nothing of significance really landing in there. I thought when we went to the judges' scorecards, that second round could be a big swing round because while Menafield did his best work, he looked to have been staggered at the end of the round. I am surprised to see the 29-28 go. First round, obviously Knight. Second round does go Menafield. It's that third round while having his back against the cage, which as far as I've told is the control time that's racking up for Menafield that Menafield wasn't doing enough and the slaps, the two leg kicks, William Knight gets the decision victory in a fight that I was hoping was going to be a knockout. Nearly produced it a couple times but couldn't get there. In the lightweight division, really early on in the card, we're talking about the second fight on this big long 13 fight card, Claudio Pugos defeats Chris Gritzmacher with a knee bar in the third round. Gritzmacher is normally a bully, making fights gritty. He was in survival mode on the ground, trying to avoid the submission-heavy guard game of Claudio, who was unafraid to pull guard. He was finding his ways to reverses, to sweeps, a left hook, a kick, a very effective second round from Claudio, who showed off that he even had the ability to strike. Well-rounded threat here. In the third round, Gritzmacher gets the side control position. He looks like he has an opportunity on some ground and pound that he could possibly pull out. Instead, Pulos dives under for a leg and is able to pull out the knee bar submission victory. The night got going with Vince Morales knocking out Luis Smolka. Smolka had the tie cleanse position, was looking to blast knees, got pushed away and a right hand over the top, turned out the lights. Vince Morales got the night going in spectacular fashion. And I said when we got started that the winner of the Bellator main event was going to have an argument to be
the best bantamweight in the world. Well, now that we've seen how the fight's played out, we'll go back to that topic. Rob Font was the last person to beat Sergio Pettis. Sergio Pettis, well, he did beat Koichi Hataguchi. It was this Hell Mary that he had to have, but he was losing on the scorecards. When you look at a Peter Yan, who's not been losing on the scorecards and has been pretty dominant, only using losing the UFC Bantamweight title because of disqualification, he dominated a Jose Aldo, who put a pretty heavy beating on a Rob Font, who's the last person to beat Sergio Pettis. So when we do weird MMA math like that, it still leaves us with the UFC interim bantamweight champion, Peter Yan, as the top bantamweight on the planet. Now we'll transition over to the fight announcements. The UFC has a bunch of stuff for us to talk, tell you about. UFC Fight Night on December 18th, we got a middleweight fight to tell you about. Kai Baralo is out. Abus Magomedov is out. Their two opponents are going to fight. Gerald Mershaw is going to fight Dustin Stolfoots. UFC Fight Night on January 15th adds at middleweight Jamie Pickett versus Kyle Borello. Whatever his issue was, obviously they got that sorted out and he'll be competing soon. The UFC Fight Night on February 5th. We'll see a middleweight headliner. You have number 6, Jack Hermanson, against number 7, Sean Strickland. The UFC Fight Night on February 26th has added at middleweight Mahmoud Muradov versus Mika, Misha Serkinov. At flyweight, Victor Altamorano versus Carlos Hernandez. And at lightweight, the rebooking from November 20th of Terrence McKinney versus Ferrazium. March 5th UFC event, so we don't know if that's going to be a pay-per-view or a fight night, has gained... At flyweight, number 9, Jessica I against number 14, Mana Fiort. UFC Fight Night on March 12th. We'll see two bantamweight additions to that card. We're going to have Trevin Jones against Javid Basharat and Guido Canetti versus Chris Montino. The UFC Fight Night on March 19th. See in women's flyweight action, Molly McClan versus Luana Carlina. And in men's flyweight action, Francisco Figueiredo versus Jake Hadley. Not to mention the UFC fight night on March 26th. The headliner will be number one ranked light heavyweight former champion Jan Blachowicz against the number three ranked Alexander Rakic. And in women's strawweight action, in works in the works for that card, Number 10 ranked Amanda Hebas is expected to fight number 9 Michelle Watterson. In Bellator news, we already told you about 2022 seeing the Bellator Bantamweight World Grand Prix. Yes, that winner does get a million dollars. But Scott Coker has also opened up the window to a couple other title fights that he will be putting together in the new year. Like in the welterweight division, Yaroslav Amoslav's first challenger will be Michael Venom Page, not Jason Jackson, as some had as expected. Fedor's retirement fight, his second send-off from Bellator in Moscow, his third or fourth actual retirement fight. That one is targeted for July, and I thought that one could be for the heavyweight title. 
Maybe it will be. But first off, Bader-Moldovsky heavyweight unification bout is the goal of Scott Croker to put that title fight together. So that's cool. Habib Nurmagomedov had announced that January 15th he would be having a press conference in Miami to discuss his Eagles FC promotion debuting in the USA. You can see that promotion on UFC Fight Pass. Their first event will come in Miami, Florida. That's going to be January 28th. It's going to be a heavyweight main event as former Glory heavyweight champion and king of kickboxing Tyrone Spong is going to take on Antonio Bigfoot Silva, the Strike Force and UFC vet. Not to mention former UFC light heavyweight champion Sugar Rashad Evans is coming out of retirement and will fight on the card. That brings us to this week's action. And it's the last LFA of 2021 coming to you from the Mystic Lake Casino Hotel in Prior Lake, Minnesota. The final LFA of the year will see a women's flyweight champion crown Myra Canto, the Brazilian, against Jamie Lynn Horth, the Canadian. Canto on a six-fight win streak. Knockout win in her last contest. Will Horth 4-0 Four finishes, three of them by knockout. Yes, this is their promotional debut, but they're such extraordinary prospects, the belt is on the line right away. The co-main event happens at 185 pounds, and Brazil's Bruno Assis, 11-5, is going to be taking on Albuquerque's unbeaten Jalen Fuller at 5-0. This one coming together on ultra-short notice. Bruno, a contender series alum, has losses to Aaron Jeffrey and top 15 ranked contender in the UFC, Andre Munoz, who he lost to on the contender series, but has won his last three fights all by submission. That's including his last two big wins in Titan FC. Fuller has experience at 170 and 185 pounds. Taking this one, I'm sure, at 185 because of the short notice. Even though he's the smaller guy, he, he packs some big power. Fuller has three first-round knockouts. In flyweight action, also on that card, you have Tony Laramie, 5-2, a three-fight win streak. Two of those three coming by knockout, going to be taking on Pius White, 4-0, three first-round finishes, and not to mention that main card is going to see in heavyweight action, current big three member, former NBA player for the Houston Rockets, Royce White, making his MMA debut, reportedly been training in the sport for the last two years, Going to be taking on Daquan Barkley, also making his professional debut. Has some amateur experience. Played fullback at Division One NCAA program, Temple. So you got two big-time athletes, pro debuts. Then this Saturday, it's UFC 269 from the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. The main event, a battle for the lightweight title of the world. Charles Oliveira defends the belt for the first time against number one contender Dustin Poirier. Oliveira 31-8, Poirier 28-6. Two guys that 
have had time at featherweight, have found their ultimate successes up at 155 pounds. Oliveira, 9 knockouts, 19 submissions. The all-time leader in submissions in the UFC. Poirier, 14 knockouts, 7 submissions, 8 wins, 1 loss, and a no contest over his last 10. But that no contest, you got to remember, epic war with Eddie Alvarez. Wins over Alvarez. Wins over Gaethje. So many epic wins and encounters, even including winning the interim UFC lightweight title. The only hurdle Poirier was not able to conquer was Habib Nurmagomedov. This one, you think about the storylines. Oliveira has been written off in the past. There was times before where there was 45-55, you thought he was going to be a nice gatekeeper. That's all you thought it was, though. Early on at 45, you thought, possibility to be the world champion. Then making the weight became harder. Returning 55, looked like that was going to be a nice little run in would he eventually exit the company. I don't know if you saw this turnaround, this dedication, this will to exceed and expand his game. The Muay Thai has just become more deadly each time out. You saw in the fight against Michael Chandler, knocked down, beat up in the first round, comes back, knocks down Chandler, gets the finish. Extraordinary stuff from Oliveira. That's the kind of fighter he's become, not the kind of fighter he was. This is a guy that took what you thought was possible for him and expounded on it hugely. Took it in a totally different directive, his career trajectory from where it was and what is now a nine-fight win streak. Poirier is the power puncher of the two. Well, you would say Oliveira is the more diverse striker. We've seen, like in fights against Justin Gaethje, Poirier be susceptible to the leg kicks because he likes to be so heavy on his jab. Really dedicated to implementing his boxing game where Oliveira can land power punches as we saw against Chandler. But he will also sneak in the elbows. He's looking to land his knees. He's a much more diverse Muay Thai striker looking to set those other weapons up rather than just bringing the heat with the leather. But as we've seen at his run at 155, those hands have been ultra effective for the diamond. You have a slight height and reach advantage across the board. For Oliveira, so we're talking about in the arms and in the legs, one inch taller. Want to dive into the numbers. Oliveira lands 3.26 strikes per minute, where Poirier lands 5.61 strikes absorbed. Oliveira at 3.0, Poirier at 4.19. I think that speaks to the fact that Poirier gets in a phone booth, gets in that box in close range and wants to exchange with his opponents because he has the faith in the chin and the faith in his power where you see Oliveira playing that long game a bit more so the numbers are a little less. Now here's where we would go to the grappling where that would favor Oliveira. He lands his takedowns 44% of the time while Poirier lands them 36% of the time. You see 
Oliveira going for three takedowns per 15 minutes. Opoyer only 1.5. Oliveira able to defend 57% of the takedowns. Opoyer slightly higher at 61%. And I'm surprised it's even so high for Oliveira. Normally he'd welcome being on his back. That shows the evolution in his MMA game. Probably saying over the last several fights, it's been a lot harder to take him down because there was a point where Oliveira would pull guard and would welcome being on his back because he had that much faith in his jiu-jitsu. And now it seems he's come to a more overall understanding of what's effective for MMA scoring. The co-main event is a women's bantamweight title bout. We got Amanda Nunez, the Lioness, 21 and 4, defending against the number three ranked contender, Juliana Pena, 10 and 4. Nunez, 13 knockouts, four submissions, a ridiculous 12 fight win streak. Pena, four subs, three knockouts. The tough 18 winner in January submitted Sarah McMahon. Pena, since winning tough 18, has tried to use the microphone, has tried to use her mouth has tried to talk her way in to title fights. And we've seen with some people, the verbal, the verbatim, the hyperbole, it heightens their stature in MMA. Conor McGregor, Chow Sutton. Pena will, she has caught up herself into a job as Combate America's annual analyst broadcaster. I don't think it's caught on with the fan base in such a productive manner that's had them clamoring to see her. Pena was expected to be fighting Holly Holmes several months ago. Holmes had to pull out of the fight. And that welcomed this opportunity because for Pena, who in ended 2020 being submitted by Jermaine Durandame, this is now a huge turnaround that with one win over Sarah McMahon, you're the highest ranked challenger that hasn't lost to the champion. You get a golden opportunity. Nunez hits harder. She's been impossible to take down recently. Pena's easiest avenue or most possible avenue to victory would be on the ground. That's notwithstanding the judo and jiu-jitsu abilities that Nunez have. But on the feet, if Pena's going to have success, that's because she's the faster fighter. Nunez has spent her last two fights up at 145. So you wonder if the weight cut is going to fatigue her. If you're Pena, you want to fight this fight a la Stipe Miocic, Francis Ngannou won. You have to try to get on the inside to not be on the end of the power punches of Nunez. You have to mix up the wrestling to the striking to try to fatigue the bigger fighter. Again, we're wondering, coming down finally to 35 after two defenses at 45, could that play in the favor of Pena? Let's be real. The lioness is about to roar, and that's what we all expect. The main card also has welterweights, number 12 versus number 14. Jeff Neal versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. Not trying to get all up in his business. Don't want to beat him down. Jeff Neal spent Thanksgiving in lockup in Texas. DWI charge, gun possession. I'm not sure how you go from that 10 days ago to performing optimally inside of the octagon. I just don't know where this dude's head's at if he's drinking to a .15 on your breathalyzer. 
Santiago Ponzinibbio had his back up against the wall and performed beautifully against Miguel Baeza. You would have to imagine that the Argentine is going to get the victory here. He just seems to want it more and be in a better place overall. In the flyweight division, you see the former Bantamweight champion, Cody Garbrandt, dropping down for the first time to 125, taking on Kai Kara France. Both fighters have 10 wins by knockout. Garbrandt has 12 wins. Kara France has 22. Well, I believe Kara France is the more diverse striker. A lot of how this fight goes will play on the weight cut. How does Garbrandt feel? How does he move? How does the weight cut affect him at 125 going down 10 more pounds? This could be the resurgence and a start of a new career for the former Bantamweight champion. Or this could be one more piece of evidence towards his chin being gone and him possibly looking towards a new line of work. If you look at the statistics, what they're going to tell you is there's a lot of things even between these guys, but Cara France puts out a higher volume and is the more accurate striker. Garbrandt loads up on his punches so much that he doesn't land as often as you would expect for an elite striker. The main card opens up with a Bantamweight matchup, matchup where Sean O'Malley takes on the number 15 ranked Julian Paiva. Paiva won three in a row. Two of them were at flyweight. He came up to 135 after a rough weight cut. Beat Kyler Phillips, who had this number 15, and that's where he gets his ranking. O'Malley has won back-to-back -back fights by knockout. Huge expectations for the Arizona social media darling, who, in his estimation is fighting this far down the card or in talent instead of bigger name fighters and bigger matchups because of what he's getting paid. Another fighter unhappy with payment and says he is taking the caliber of fights that the UFC is paying him to take. I can tell you either way, this one is going to be a striking matchup with those two throwing down. The prelims, the feature one has number 7 versus number 9 at 145. Josh Emmett versus Dan Ige. Ige is a volume striker who puts on incredible efforts every time out. He's your number nine. Your number seven, Josh Emmett, he's fighting for the first time since June 2020 since a knee injury, but on a three-fight win streak. Swings for the fences, crushing power, huge knockout potential from Emmett. Six disgusting wins by knockout since really putting his feet down, grabbing a hold of the ground, and ripping through, not just worried about using his wrestling. Ige, 1-2 over his last three after a six-fight win streak. For Ige, it's being able to overwhelm Emmett with volume. For Emmett, it's you just gotta land one. If it's the right one, with the right boxing, we're putting the power behind it, he just needs one. Bantamweight, you have number 10, Dominic Cruz, the former champion, taking on number 8, Pedro Munoz. Munoz is going to be looking for the counter shot. It's Can we see a Dominic Cruz dictate the pace in the volume? If so, Cruz gets the victory. I just don't know if Munoz is going to be able to land the necessary strikes. But then again, we've seen a Dominic Cruz not at his best over the last couple, and he's been susceptible to the leg kicks. That's where success starts for Munoz at the legs. Heavyweights, number 10, Augusto Sakai, who has knockout power, 
but will play the ugly clinch game, takes on Australian Taya Tuivasa. Everybody loves the Shuey King. He has big power. That one has fireworks written all over it. In the middleweight division, six-fight win streak, Bruno Silver brings in to his meeting with Jordan Wright, who has a 100% finishing rate. Wright, 12 wins, 7 knockouts, 5 submissions. Silva, 21 wins, 18 by knockout. Early prelims, you get the number 15 middleweight in the world, Andre Munoz, coming off of breaking Jacare Souza's arm within an arm bar, a seven fight win streak into his meeting with Eric Anders, 14 and 5. Eight of those wins by knockout. The former Alabama linebacker, big explosive power, but this is a guy that was pushed heavily, looked like he had true superstar potential, even to the point where he's fighting Leota Machida early on in his UFC career, and the trajectory has went the other way for Eric Anders. The Brazilian has the advantage when he gets it to the ground. It'll be interesting to see how this one plays out on the feet. In women's flyweight action, number 13, Miranda Maverick, is going to take on Aaron Blanchfield. Maverick has won 5 of 6, Come with that, that controversial split decision loss to Macy Barber. Blanchfield, 7-1, a 4-fight win streak, coming off of beating Sarah Alpar in her UFC debut. I think that one is going to be a grueling affair. Immense flyweight action, number 4, Eric Pettis takes on number 9, Matt Schnell. Pettis, the guy can hammer you with leg kicks. He has knockout ability with his punches. His bread and butter is his wrestling, and he can't submit you. Matt Schnell, he's a jiu-jitsu guy who, when his hands are flowing, does have the potential to sting you. We have a featherweight matchup that pits Ryan Hall against Derek Minner. Minner 26 wins, 22 by submission, and Hall is the one that's threatening on the ground. Just keep that in mind. Randy Acosta versus Tony Kelly. That one should be a gritty, grueling banger as our second fight on the card. And opening up the event, Priscilla Cachera, Cachuera, who's 10-3, 6 wins by knockouts, takes on Jillian Roberts. Roberts, 9-6, and six, with five wins by submission. So you got that striker versus grappler aspect. And for all the people that like the extracurriculars, there are some huge betting favorites on this card. So you know there's some huge underdogs. The biggest favorites, Sean O'Malley at a minus 300. Alex Pettis coming in at a minus 335. Bruno Silva coming in at minus 350. Jillian Robertson, the grappler taking on the striker, comes in at a minus 400. And the Lioness, we call her the women's goat for a reason. She comes in as a staggering minus 900 there in Las Vegas. It's UFC 269, the final pay-per-view of the year, championship doubleheader. I will be out there in Las Vegas for this event. So hopefully, Cage Minds MMA show on YouTube. We will have some videos up. Fight night from those post-fight press conferences. Coverage of the weigh-ins. And as much more as I can get to you, check out the website. It's cageminds.com. Thanks for watching.